Election Day has come and gone. Now what? Welcome to the Texas Take, a special live edition here on Facebook. I hope uh, everybody got some sleep. Um, I don't. I know that Jeremy didn't. Lisa, you look a little like. Did you take a? Did you take a nap at least? You look cosmetic. Cosmetic. I see. Darling. You look fresher. You look fresher. Mm-hmm. And Maria, you do too. Um, <laughs> Luis, you and I look terrible, Luis. I mean, look at us. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, um, we have a great panel of folks to talk here. Usually it's Jeremy and I going through all this stuff, just the work of day reporters. I'm glad that uh, you folks were able to join us with me. I've got Jeremy Wallace, ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle, managing editor for content, Maria Reeve. It's good to see you. Thank you. Also editor of opinion, Lisa Falkenberg. Hello. Hello. Looking so chipper. And Luis Carrasco, who is editorial writer. Hello, sir. Hello, everyone. Who wants to try to unwind this first? Oh, is it? Oh, okay. All right. Jeremy, you take it. Uh, let, let's start broadly uh, because these, and we'll, we'll kind of drill down into what's going on here in Texas. Um, but at the national level, not shocking at all to me. I, I wonder what y'all think uh, to once again, be looking at the, whether it doesn't matter if you're looking at the map on foxnews.com, houstonchronicle.com, New York times, whatever it's still then. And of course you should be looking at houstonchronicle.com, but it's the same States as always. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, here we go. Once again, the Rust Belt. Um, Jeremy, I'll let you take it first and whoever else wants to jump in. Yeah, it, it, we're back to that point where every you know political analyst is trying to be an expert on Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Break out your analysis, folks. <laughs> you know, but yeah. So, yeah, obviously, we're going to be waiting for Pennsylvania, although there's a there's a little bit of a curveball this time, you know, yeah. to see Arizona uh, come in. And uh, it looks like it's going Biden at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. He still has a lead there. Uh, so it looks like, you know, there's a little bit of a breakthrough. You see the southwest of the United States is now really started to trend much more blue. Uh, you know, it, it, when you put it together with Nevada and even, you know, looking at you know places like Colorado and New Mexico, you can see that the, the country is being divided all, along a new line, almost like a yeah. parallel, you know, uh, from Texas west. It's going to be more, you know, blue. And if you go east, it's going to, you know, particularly in the south, obviously, you're still going to be much more red. Right. It's what happens when the president of the United States got into office by trading votes in the Sun Belt for votes in the Rust Belt. Right. And uh, Maria, yeah. I know you had some thoughts on, uh, you know, the, the the idea. We keep hearing this uh, conversation about uh, who can talk better to working class whites. And right. you had the Democratic Party sort of. And I think this is an interesting flip. As I was growing up as a kid in Texas, it always seemed like. Um, the Republican Party was the ones who were more interested in the pocketbook issues, thinking with their head instead of their heart and all of that. And in some ways, it's kind of flipped. Now you have this populist streak with the Republicans. You know, they're much more based on passion, whether you agree with them or not. It's, it's about their emotions and their passion, how they feel about things and facts be damned. Um, and then on the Democratic side, th- through their primary, they had folks who were you know populists who did not get denomination right instead it's joe biden the guy who's been there for uh, you know almost 50 years and sort of checks the right boxes about winning some of those states what do you think's going on i think a couple of things um i do think that uh for many democrats at the beginning of this one we had you know 500 candidates and it got whittled down people were counting on or making a calculation about who was electable who could beat uh you know the president mm-hmm with working class white voters. And I think that's what it came down to for many people. I, and uh, I hate to sound like a broken record, uh, but everybody's gonna talk about the polls. I mean, they, there was a Washington Post poll you know, sometime last month that had uh, Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin. And now mm-hmm. we're watching to wait and see what's happening in Wisconsin. So you know, I wanna you know, dig in or have Jeremy dig in at some point about what's going on with these polls. Yeah, I think we can always give Jeremy more assignments. Lisa, what do you think? Well, I think what you're saying about the, the populist uh, streak is interesting. In some ways, I think it's it's really good because we have a party, a Republican Party, that seems to be um, making the interests of the middle class, lower middle class, uh, a priority. When we see that in policy, I'll feel better. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but instead of, you know, a party that's just dominated, I guess, in their priorities by corporate interests, um, we at least have the lift service toward, uh, you know, people, uh, their struggles, uh, you know, finding jobs, focus on unemployment, mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's that's always good. The I do want to talk about it's not just white people. I mean, we're we're seeing the uh, we're seeing the um, you know working class mm-hmm. uh, groups across all kinds of demographics uh, supporting the president in in Texas. I think we ended up with around forty percent of Hispanic uh, vote going to um, the president. So, yep. what's going on there? I mean, we talked a little bit about this uh, before, but the but the interesting dynamics in the Valley versus El Paso versus uh, Arizona, we know Hispanic voters are not a monolith and, and yet it's um, they're surprising in some ways, the outcome in the Valley versus what, what people were predicting, uh, you know, in, in response to the president's rhetoric against, against immigrants and people of Hispanic uh, heritage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at the uh, way that campaigns have been run here in Texas uh, specifically, and I think more broadly around the United States, Luis, you think about the idea that even two and four years ago, and this is something that Jeremy and I have discussed on the podcast a lot, those Republicans who were able to win yesterday in Texas in congressional races and Texas House races, we'll drill down more on that later. The ones who were winning in the suburbs were not the ones saying like they would have in those past elections, I'm a conservative fighter for you either in Austin or Washington, Republicans now are having to argue that they are bipartisan, uh, you know, problem solvers who want to work with Democrats. And I think to Lisa's point, you may see that in some policy. And I I would point to the last um, session of the Texas legislature where Republicans were running in 2018, trying to get away from the whole bathroom bill debacle in 2017, which people around the state, there was a huge backlash to that in addition to what happened with Beto O'Rourke at the top of the ticket. Um, But by the time they got to the 2019 session, they wanted to focus on what? Just property taxes and school finance and almost nothing else, right? None of the social issues. They didn't want to argue about abortion. They didn't want to talk about uh, gay rights and all that sort of stuff that they might have been, you know, that they were going straight to in 2017. It was just a dumpster fire of a legislature. Some did. Some did, but not yeah. the leaders. You're right about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some right. were still so, talking about that stuff. <laughs> there are a few. Yeah, right. Um, but those were not in power, right? And they didn't get anything out of uh, where they were going with it. I mean, the, the governing coalition uh, that came out of a, an election that was um, closer uh, and fought in a different way. Uh, so the governing coalition was different. And it, look, I think, Luis, if those Republicans don't govern the way that they campaigned, which was to say that were much more moderate. In a lot of cases, they didn't even say that they were Republicans to win in some of these suburban races. Um, they could be punished next time around. What do you think? And that, that, that's the thing, right? Will they, is this the lesson that they will draw? That they have to be moderate, that Texas is changing, and that they are ahead of the curve on that? Or will this, you know, validation of the president who represents, you know, the opposite of that attitude, Uh, Will that embolden uh, this other harsher, more uh, extreme view of things? And I don't know, not only not flipping the house for Democrats, not only is that, you know, a a big problem, it's that they made zero gains, zero net gains, right? It's not, you know, they got close, but they fell short. No, it was a a complete (laughs) blowout. So I I, I really worry. I don't know what you're hearing about, you know, how they're looking at that is, you know, the fact that Texas is still solidly red. Solidly, yeah, solidly red. And any, you know, anybody can jump in, but I would add this, that it's not just that the Democrats put forward, you know, a really impressive effort uh, on the Texas House races, which they did. I mean, let's, let's give them credit for spending a lot of money and doing a lot of things that they needed to do to make these races competitive because they were, it's not like Republicans could sleep on these races like they were in, would in the past and then still be able to win them. Instead, you saw what happened toward the end of the cycle where groups like Texans for lawsuit reform, which is just sort of shorthand for major players in the Texas business community. They showed up with $11 million in the last three weeks of the election to backstop these Republican candidates in the Texas House, uh, and they needed to do strategic things differently. It wasn't just the messaging that they were uh, you know, focusing on. They were also focused on the way that they were running these campaigns. Republicans really had to fight to keep their seats, and they did that. But when the Republicans really showed up you know, with resources, uh, Maria, they were able to um, you know, uh, beat these Democrats back, but they had to match them dollar for dollar. 
uh, in these races. And a lot, I mean, $11 million versus the $12 million that the super PAC forward majority was doing for Texas House races. Um, what do you make of the way that that played out, especially in some of these suburban uh, areas? That Texas is still red. Um, <laughs> that there's, that well, despite what, you know, what people thought they could capitalize on from Beto O'Rourke's uh, uh, run uh, at Cruz and and such that they had uh, banked on being able to flip some of these that mm-hmm. it simply didn't happen. Um, I wonder what kind of mandate uh, they will draw from this. Um, so mm-hmm. Really curious about that. Hey, go ahead, Lisa. I can see you chomping at the bit. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that the, com- the competition itself that you're talking about is part of it is what moved um, you know Republicans. Republican uh, leaders last session toward a more pragmatic agenda. So they didn't just suddenly wake up and say, oh, we want to be good, you know, good government uh, stewards. Uh, they, they realized that, um, that they had to do something than just talk about abortion and, you know, wave the red meat in front of, in front of their base. And so I think that's good. I mean, as a journalist, I like covering new, different, competitive, things this when texas is purple that'll that'll be far more interesting than one party rule mm-hmm. um you know personally i mean i'm the opinion editor so i can say this, but personally i don't want texas blue i don't want texas red i want i want competition it, it, it puts us in the game mm-hmm. nationally or texas isn't an afterthought Can, candidates national candidates have to presidential candidates have to come here um they have to think about the interests of texans mm-hmm. and you know, I just think voters are better served when there's competition. Although, you know, now that we've seen uh, the wash in in the House and Democrats' efforts to flip those seats not bearing fruit, what are we going to see? We're going to see another redistricting process that's mm-hmm. dominated by one party that now has the information from this election to go back, tweak those districts, tweak, turn them you know, uh, warp them into whatever shape that they want. It's going to give them the advantage of the next 10 years. Well, yeah, and we should say on that point that the uh, Supreme Court has said that when it comes to partisan gerrymandering of those districts, that the federal courts have no role, although you could still see lawsuits uh, if there is um, discrimination based on race, if the, uh, you know, if the Democrats can make that case going forward, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on that, right? Um, Jeremy, what do you think about that from Lisa saying that, look, you, you do have a more competitive environment here. I mean, we should say uh, for Biden that instead of a nine point race, it's within a seven point race in Texas now. And I go back to 2014 when I think about the fact that $40 million was spent on you know, by the Wendy Davis campaign and on her behalf by allied organizations to try to get her elected. And she loses to Greg Abbott by 21 points. That is a disaster. You can't spin that, you know, it, for Democrats in any positive light, really. And they would admit that. Um, and you would think, well, maybe Democrats nationally would just kind of give up on Texas at that point. But then you go forward to 2018, where you have the most expensive U.S. Senate race in history to that point with O'Rourke and Cruz. How much did uh, O'Rourke raise uh, in the end of that uh, by the time it was all over, Jeremy, like $80 million or something? Yeah, it was, um, around $80 million. They combined for $125 million, which was a record until this year. Right. You would think that after that 14 blowout that there would be no case to be made to donors to spend that kind of money on Texas, but they still did anyway. And you might look at this last election last night and say, well, now there's no case once again for people to spend money. But there's always a narrative to be spun around why Democrats should invest in Texas. Yeah. The, the, well, and the thing is, is like, you know, I know, you know, it looks like, you know, look, Texas is definitely, you know, Trump proved last night that Texas is still red. There's no yep. doubt about that. But there's a shifting of what we think of Texas and where it's blue and where it's not, where it's red and where it's not. You know, so mm-hmm. look at what you know, Joe Biden was able to do, or at least the Biden campaign. They actually did better in Harris County, the biggest county in Texas, than Hillary Clinton did. You know, yeah. by, by good 10 to 20,000 votes so far. We'll know, you know, for sure by the time we get you know, a couple more days down the road. In Bear County, they destroyed Trump. Trump has you know, his numbers in Bear County in San Antonio are uh, about as low as like you have to go back to 1968, you know, mm-hmm. to find a, a Republican candidate who has done as badly uh, as Trump is doing in, in Bear County right now. And then you look along the I-35 corridor. Look, look at you know, Williamson and Hayes County have completely flipped over. 
These are counties that Ann Richards, you know, won back in 1990, but have been away from the Republicans ever, ever from the Democrats ever since. You know, but last night we saw for the first time in a presidential race in, you know, a lot of people's lifetimes, you know, flipping over to uh, the Democratic Party. And then you look at, you know, the, even the burbs up in um, uh, Dallas and Collin and Denton County. They're much closer than you know, we ever had anticipated them being. So mm -hmm. those trend lines, what we're going to get out of this presidential race is that that I-35 corridor that you know, I've been calling the blue spine, that thing has definitely gone bluer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's becoming a problem if you're in central Texas, if you're a Republican, you saw it in the campaign ads. Those, you know, ads on prescription drugs, those ads on, you know, uh, you know, uh, health care is like that tone that the, the bread and butter issues you're talking about. Yeah. That's going to be much more important now for Republicans to focus on when they're along those major metropolitan areas from, you know, Laredo all the way up to Dallas, Fort Worth. The problem, you know, that I, I see where the Biden campaign had, and we talked mm -hmm. about it earlier here, was clearly in the valley. Uh, they actually pushed their numbers higher. You know, if you look at the results compared to 2016, they're doing better than Hillary Clinton in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. But here's the wild card. The Republicans did gangbusters down yes. there. They were able to, you know, I was looking at Hildago uh, and Cameron County. Mm -hmm. Right now, the Republican, you know, vote totals out of those places is almost double what it was in 2016. That is incredible. You know, I talked to uh, the Webb County Republican Party chairman, uh, uh, Bill Young. You know, he's been down there forever, and he's, he kept telling me, we have a lot more people now. They're, they're invigorated by Trump in ways that people outside of this area don't understand. Yeah. I think he was right. Yeah. Um, interesting. You mentioned some of the issues that were at play there, including healthcare, and I want to come back to that. But I do want to say one thing about campaigning in the era of COVID-19. We haven't really mentioned the pandemic here. Of course, we're on Zoom today on Facebook Live. Otherwise, we would probably all be in the office together doing this. Um, it has upended life in so many ways. It's cliche to say that we live in unprecedented times and all of that. Um, but I do think that the difference in the way the Republicans and the Democrats, and this came right from the top from President Trump and, and Joe Biden, um, the way that the two parties approached campaigning during the pandemic really had an impact here. We wrote about this a lot at quorumreport.com, uh, the idea that you had Republicans um, just doing traditional block walking like they normally would in these local races. And that that applies in the, especially in the Texas House races, but in the congressional races as well. Now, I went along and reported from, uh, you know, some of these block walking efforts during the pandemic, and it wasn't rocket surgery, as they say in East Texas. You know, they were um, you know, knocking the door, they were knocking on the door, they're wearing a mask. They would hang a, um, you know, a piece of literature on the door, step back 10 feet. And if the person came to the door, they would engage them in a conversation. Democrats for months refused to do anything like that. Uh, in these races that are local, local races, you have to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with voters. That's always been, you know, the old axiom in Texas politics. And I think around the country, if you're walking, then we're talking. Doing, doing the block walking is so essential in these races. Um, it's different from phone banking, virtual events, any of that stuff where people can just hang it up. If right. you're having if you're having real conversations with people, that's just completely different. Um, and you saw in some of these suburban races, uh, particularly in Collin County, Denton County, where the Democrats were more, as Jeremy said, more uh, competitive than they have been. You had Democrats locked in their houses doing Zoom events and phone banking and Republicans and their campaign staffers and volunteers going out and actually talking to people. They were doing events and uh, people are gonna debate that for years, you know, whether they were putting people at risk uh, by doing that, um, you know, by having some of these, I saw where uh, the Republican party chairman, Alan West and others, they were just, you would look on their Facebook page and they're just, you know, hugging each other, no masks, no, not doing any of the things that have been, um, you know, the guidance from the CDC and, the, and President Trump's own administration about how you're supposed to safely operate in a pandemic. Uh, but at the end of the day, that sort of brazenness, Luis, is what helped put a lot of these folks over the top. And it was uh, Dave Carney, who's the top strategist for Governor Abbott, who had sort of gleefully bragged about the idea that Democrats are seeding it right at the moment when they got the wind at their backs and they should be able to win. They're seeding um, you know, field operations to Republicans in these uh, competitive races. It's just one of those tactics that you have to do. And as a friend of mine likes to say, um, it is always the Democrats who would rather be fair and right than win an election. <laughs> oh, what, do you, what do you think, Luis? That's 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 right. There there has to be a middle ground, right? And part of the 
politicization of the pandemic is that, you know, on, on one hand, you have the president having these rallies that, you know, that Stanford study has, you know, 30,000 people getting infected uh, out of right. those rallies. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, you have Joe Biden, you know, hiding in the basement as he was characterized by the president. And he, there, there is a way to campaign responsibly. And as you mentioned, a lot of Republicans figured out a way to do that. But, uh, you know, this, this fear of, you know, we don't want to be like the president, we're taking the campaign, the pandemic very seriously, mm -hmm. it, it ended up hobbling the, the Democrats. It's, it's, a, it's a real shame. And it is about outreach and connecting with people directly. You know, even we mentioned the, the valley. And you have to, if somebody's not voting, if somebody, you have to get to them in person. You just can't just give them a phone call, you know, hope they hop on a Zoom uh, panel. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I did wonder about Imagine the, if, uh, you know, in the Better O'Rourke, you know, Ted Cruz race, Better O'Rourke could do no, you know, rallies, couldn't do no face-to-face. -face. All right. The entire feel of 2018 is completely different. Completely different. So there was no chance for an MJ Hager or anybody to catch catch that same kind of lightning in a bottle that he seemed to have had. Yeah. Uh, Maria, I think you were going to jump in. Yeah. I mean, I did wonder what impression that left to see, you know, on – networks where Trump would have these huge rallies with 30, 50,000 people and mm -hmm. what what impact that had on, you know, voters and how they were thinking and whether you decided to go along with with that or, uh, you know, vote another way. But I, I do think it made an impact. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, Democrats sometimes would rather be right than win. Uh, yeah. I can't take credit for that. It was a good friend of mine. But uh, Lisa, I wonder what you think. And I, I would throw this in that, you know, when um, the Republicans were doing their events around the state, uh, just normal campaign, I would show up for some of these things, try to keep my distance and my mask on and everything. But they're just doing a normal event. Um, and you have uh, these congressional and legislative races that are, uh, Jeremy, as we've talked about, you know, that's a little further down the ballot, especially Texas House is 10th on the ballot in a place like Harris County or in Dallas County. And for a lot of these uh, candidates down ballot with no straight ticket voting option anymore. The first challenge for them was to figure out how to even let people know that they have a race, right? And then and then convince them why it matters and why they should vote for them. Uh, you know, you have uh, some of these Democrats who it was the joke that they were just locked in their house, uh, you know, and hoping, uh, you know, that all of these other campaign tactics would work while the Republicans were out there embracing a much more traditional approach. Right. I, I um, you know, as part of the editorial board's efforts to um, to come up with a list of recommendations to candidates, we interviewed all of them, most of them. And I remember talking with Lily Trong, who was a Republican who was challenging Hubert Vaux, uh, Houston state rep. Now, she didn't win because that district is, is pretty uh, heavily Democratic. But um, <laughs> at one point she was saying she was block walking, going everywhere. She was doing it safely. She was using her, you know, her sanitizer and wipes and everything. And she was bitten, attacked by a dog, bitten. And, you yeah. know, the next day, the next day she was back out again. But I'm, I'm ready and daring to go back. <laughs> and I talked to, and I talked yeah. to Bo and he's just like, you know, doing events in his home and, and he's a quiet guy anyway, but it, it was just, it, it was again and again and again. I talked to the Democrats and they would, you know, describe themselves as, as, as on the computer all the time. And, and Republicans would be out and about. Yeah. I don't advocate anybody doing it unsafely, but I think there were plenty of Republicans who found a way, you know, to do it safely. In, in terms of the presidential race, I will mm -hmm. say that the, the image that, that Trump is trying to pro project with this, you know, chest puffery and you know, yes. vigor and, and acting strong even after even after he's diagnosed with, with COVID is um, in stark contrast to Biden, who is always in a mask, always mm. kind of seemed to be convalescing, even though he wasn't the one who was sick. <laughs> always seemed the biggest to be mask. He wears the biggest mask you've ever seen. Look <laughs> at this guy. And so but, but he seemed to be, um, you know, cautious and behaving more like an older person than Trump, who was appearing vigorous and younger and taking risks and being out. So whatever, it played to the narrative that, that Trump has been trying to, to build. Yeah. Um, the issues of healthcare and the way that that has shifted, uh, I, I want to get into some of the other issues too, but, but on the issue of healthcare specifically, um, the 
arguments that people are having publicly about it have shifted so dramatically um, in the last couple of cycles. Um, the idea previously from Republicans was that the, the government had no business telling the insurance industry that they had to cover you if you had a pre-existing condition, right? Uh, that's one of the major arguments against the Affordable Care Act. And now in race, race after race, congressional and in Texas House races, Jeremy, it, it didn't matter. You were listening to Republicans or Democrats. They were each trying to argue that they could do a better job of getting you protection for your pre-existing conditions. They would do it better than the Democrat or the Democrat would do it better than the Republican. Um, the attitudes about at least certain parts of the Affordable Care Act, which was so controversial years ago and in large part led to the giant Republican sweep in Texas and other places back in 2010. Now these things are just baked in and people expect the government to uh, do that for you in a lot of ways, like people expect social security and Medicare to be there, right? This, this is uh, part of the social contract. We agree that people who have some illness are not going to be discriminated against and Republicans are having to argue that now. Um, what do you make of the way that played in some of these congressional races and, and elsewhere? One of the things I think was interesting about that, that there were so many campaigns talking about, you know, I'm going to you know, pre, you know pre, uh, protect pre-existing conditions. I think mm -hmm. it kind of muddied the waters for Democrats. You know, it was it was kind of, if you were a more casual voter, a little bit more independent minded and you're hearing these messages, it's like, wait, like I have, you know, Chip Roy saying it. I have Wendy Davis saying it. I have, you know, John Carter saying it. I have, you know, MJ Hager saying I can't remember which one. I think they all want to you know, protect it. Why does it matter? And it's like, and I think so. I think what was, the Republicans were successful in was, you know, maybe muddying the water a little bit, and you know, saying, look, the pre-existing condition, you know, issue cannot be a deciding factor if voters are confused. <laughs> it's like, you know, it looked like everybody was going to fight for it. So, you know, again, you know, thinking about an independent, you know, type of you know voter who might have gone either way, it's just like that message in the end just wasn't as big of a selling point, I think, because people couldn't understand, well, what is the difference in those plans? Look, I wrote right. some stories that people should have read, but it still was, if for a casual viewer, you saw the ad and you're like, I don't know what the difference is. What What is the difference between, you know, as long as you're protecting pre-existing conditions, I'm fine, right? Right. Yeah. Nobody's going to go check and see that, you know, Republican incumbents had voted to try to get rid of that protection over and over right. again. Uh, Luis, uh, let's think about that. Plus this. I had overnight uh, been thinking about this, um, you know, defunding the police argument, defending police versus defunding police. Uh, you saw the Republicans, uh, the especially Republican uh, top leaders in Texas. Governor Abbott, John Cornyn, uh, you know, members of Congress, et cetera, and also Texas House members, just blasting Democrats for being the ones who want to defund police. Of course, when the governor originally laid out his uh, back to the blue pledge, you had top Democrats around here, what passes for top Democrats around here, say that there are no candidates for the legislature or running for Congress that want to defund police, but that didn't seem to matter. The Republicans, I guess, must have been looking at something in their numbers that said they're looking at their poll numbers, um, especially of, of suburban areas and saying this is a message that must resonate because they were on, you know, in TV ads, uh, in press conferences, in earned media, talking all the time about how and Dan Patrick just last week on the Mark Davis show up in Dallas, uh, talking to my friend there said that, hey, if Trump wins, our cities are going to burn because these people on the left are, are just out of their minds. You know, um, this is something that I think must on some level have resonated. And then I saw uh, in a response to one of my tweets about this last night, um, Chief Chief uh, Art Acevedo, uh, who if you listen to him talk, sometimes you would think that the HPD had no history of, uh, you know, any problems, uh, you know, with with the minority communities out there. But that aside, he said that folks don't want the defunding of police. And he said that, um, you know, Republicans can thank Democrats for embracing the quote unquote socialism coming out of uh, Austin City Hall, which I've Austin often said when when Republicans in Texas run out of winning arguments, they can always count on the city of Austin to come up with something to be angry about. How do you think that played, uh, Luis? Was it was it a defining issue uh, here in Texas, at least, and maybe around the country in some select places? Yeah, I was trying to find the, the tweet that uh, the chief had and which which uh, kind of uh, 
kind of made me angry to read that from Acevedo. He's Did you see that? I mean, I can read yeah, it. I got yeah, it right yeah. here. He says, he's, I can read the whole thing. He said, Texas Democrats can thank, quote, socialist Democrats and the defund the police crowd led by Greg Kassar and Jimmy Flanagan. Those are two Austin City Council members. Uh, he said, fact, Americans and Texans want better policing, not depolicing, and they don't want anything to do with any form of socialism. Yeah, Your no, thoughts? I mean, Acevedo always likes to play both sides. He's he's very savvy, and and so were, you know, Texas GOP leaders. They they managed to spin that something that, as you pointed out, no candidate on the Democratic side was arguing for defunding the police. But it was very easy to paint that picture, all right. And so I uh, I don't know how much uh, that really you know pushed voters to the Republican side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was a losing issue for Democrats, clearly, uh, because nobody, nobody really, if you're an independent, even if you consider that, uh, you know, police violence and there's systemic racism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But really, the idea of defunding the police is, is not very popular. And as far as health care, you're right. You know, for Democrats, it's hard to run on health care when the other side is running on health care, too. I think the danger for Republicans comes now, you know, the Supreme Court, 6-3, if they uh, do away with the with Obamacare, with the Affordable mm-hmm. Care Act, they're going to have to, you know, do more than just pay lip service to protecting um, uh, pre-existing conditions and, right. and other things protected. Yeah, yeah, right. We kept we kept hearing from them, repeal and replace, repeal and replace. Maria, what do you think about, you know, in the in the wake of the death of George Floyd, it would seem that this would have been a natural um, rallying point for folks who are uh, more progressive, uh, you know, people who do embrace at least the idea of Black Lives Matter. Um, oh. And it's almost like, well, it's almost like Democrats had a meeting and somebody else, so I can't take credit for this one either, but it's worth repeating. Um, the, the It's almost like Democrats had a meeting and they went into the thing saying, what, what do we do with all this positive energy for, you know, criminal justice reform, et cetera? Uh, the question is, how do we take this and turn it into a thing where some people feel like they have to vote for President Trump? You know, they come out with this, this slogan of defund police. Um, I mean, it's the Green New Deal, as one of my friends said, um, that's that's a term where people could say, oh, yeah, you know, government could sit down and, and work with some of the big energy companies on how to figure out how to have a, quote, Green New Deal, you know, just as a, as a branding, uh, you know, uh, thing. Um, but with defund police, you can't find anybody who likes that. No, uh, a couple Almost. of things. I, th- I think our reporting tried to to make clear in, in spots, you know, when uh, the Austin City Council, um, that issue was going on there, our reporting was making clear. But I don't think uh, that, that the Democrats themselves made the argument um, crystal clear enough for voters. Um, so, look, I spent uh, like 25 years in uh, the Twin Cities. And mm-hmm. so uh, I know that there are you know, very sort of liberal folks on the Minneapolis City Council where this issue has come up and they've had votes about it. But when you start talking to the public and and some some parts of the public, you know, people want better policing, not necessarily no policing. They want a way for everyone to feel safe, not just some communities. And so I'm not sure. I think uh, you know, Democrats didn't do a very good job of countering the ads that showed, you know, the precinct in Minneapolis burning and with, you know, Nancy Pelosi's face over it and whatever candidate they were right. trying to target yeah. here. So I'm not sure there there was a good counter argument. But, you know, for, for many people, you know, they want the same things everybody else wants, which is to feel safe in, in your homes and, you know, going to work and school. Um, yeah. Uh, but that that topic, I'm not sure Democrats did did yeah. themselves favors there. And Lisa, you really well, I was gonna say, Lisa, you well, Lisa, you've covered the um, you know, criminal justice system so much. I mean, I wonder what you think when we we did have, um, you know, in the last I would say at least the better part of the last decade, a lot of conservatives moving toward the idea of being more accepting of criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which you know, I cross swords with them now and then, but uh, fact is, on this, they've come more toward the middle on it. And a lot of conservative lawmakers and activists and, and political donors have said that we should stop punishing people just because we're mad at them 
and instead only use punishment, uh, you know, for people who, you know, are really some threat to society to lock people up, not just to lock them up. Right. So we, we had made some progress toward that. Do you worry at all that the way this campaign played out and the way that issue played out puts some of that bipartisan agreement at risk? I don't know about that. I, I think whoever's writing the slogans over there on the liberal side needs to be more careful. I mean, the same thing with ICE. I forget what that one was, but cancel ICE or something. Ban, um, yeah, uh, abolish ICE. A- abolish ICE, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So open borders. That's what that translates to, you know, right. on the on the Republican side. But then one day, I think, uh, Luis, on the editorial board, we actually had a session where we tried to think of a, of another phrase that, that would, you know, reallocate funding reallocate funding it doesn't have the same ring as uh, as defund the police Uh, nobody means defund the police what i what i love is to talk about somebody uh, to talk to uh somebody like uh, harris county sheriff who who did win overwhelmingly um Mm -hmm. ed gonzalez who speaks about this in a in an empathy in a in a compassionate smart way you know as a as a a homicide detective as a city councilman he's done so many different things so he sees uh we do have rising crime we do have people on the streets who are dangerous we do also have situations where police are being called to scenes where they are elevating the situation instead Mm -hmm. of de-escalating and people are getting people are getting killed so so bringing in mental health professionals and all this i mean something needs to be done. And I think most people in a situation that's not so heated and in a political battle will will understand that. Um, You're right. Conservatives, um, you know, have led, have supported a criminal justice reform. I mean, President Trump uh, supported, was able to, you know, uh, support legislation that finally got passed on on a federal level. Mm -hmm. So I I hope that, you know, the, the arguments for criminal justice reform do not fizzle. I think on the conservative side, it's not so much about, uh, feeling the pain of people wrongfully incarcerated, although I'm sure many do. It's the fiscal argument of how, how much sense does it make to pay so much money to incarcerate people who don't deserve to be there or, you know, that it's not doing them any good to sit in jail for on a drug, uh, you know, conviction when we can yeah. when we can uh, provide services that sure. get out yeah, a fiscal issue and also a workforce issue, having people locked up who could be working in this economy uh, and doing jobs that are d- definitely needed. You know, this issue, Jeremy, did come up in the U.S. Senate race, which I haven't even really mentioned yet, turned into kind of about what we thought it was going to be, right? Looking at the different polls, it was never thought to be as nearly as competitive as maybe the presidential race in Texas, which wasn't as competitive as some of those polls reflected, uh, right? Uh, but with uh, Senator Cornyn, um, always thought he was going to outperform Trump, um, you know, the, the results uh, you know, you look at everything and say, OK, it was pretty early in the night that we knew that uh, Hager wasn't going to have it. And she went ahead and uh, conceded. I thought it was just political malpractice for uh, the Democratic nominee to not do everything she needed to do to unite the party after a pretty nasty primary and primary runoff. When you had um, it, they had a, about a million votes cast and before the uh, before the general election, we should say this. We only had a couple of data points for whether people were really going to turn out during a pandemic. One was the July runoff for the Democrats, a U.S. Senate race in the middle of the summer when there is a uh, virus rampaging the planet. And they still had about a million people show up for anything similar. You'd have to go back. Back to 2012, when David Dewhurst and Ted Cruz were facing off in a, in a July runoff, and there, of course, was not a pandemic at that time. And then there was a special election for state Senate in North Texas, where they had, I think, about 65,000 people voted in that. And for comparable elections, that was a September special election, and there's a runoff coming up in December for that. 65,000 people voted in that. In a comparable election, I was looking at one of the other uh, state Senate special elections from a few years ago, where they probably only had about 30 people vote in that. So there was and that was a mostly Republican uh, district uh, for that state Senate seat. I think they're about 75% Republican there. So on the U S Senate race and in that uh, GOP race up in North Texas, huge turnout, um, you know, during a pandemic and at weird times for people to be voting. So you'd expect this big turnout. So that, you know, not surprising. Although, although I do think on election day um, it is the case that to, for the three weeks of early voting, we're probably uh, cannibalizing election day voting uh, for sure. So we probably could have gotten away with two weeks of early voting, but, you know, Governor Abbott wanted to thread the needle and, you know, make sure that people could, uh, you know, space themselves out if that's what they wanted to do. But what were your thoughts on the Senate race, Jeremy? Um, I don't know that you kind of alluded to this, that Hager 
never was the kind of candidate that Beto O'Rourke was. And you had Washington, I'll just say it, Washington Democrats selecting the person that they thought should be the nominee um, who checked the right boxes. Isn't it interesting that all of these quote unquote moderate Democratic candidates all happen to be veterans, probably a fighter pilot, you know, wherever it was in the country, they could find somebody who check those boxes and Hager did. Um, and you know, she's a different kind of candidate and ran a different kind of race than what we saw two years ago. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the moral of the story for Democrats is they have to do a better job of taking notes when they see something successful, right? You know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, his, his success wasn't, okay, he had a ton of money. So he ran a bunch of TV ads. He didn't do that. If you go back, you know, look at, you know, like I think, and not just MJ Hager, but I think all the Democrats who were in that primary to begin with, like they just weren't out. This is before the pandemic. They weren't out. They weren't in every part of the state. They weren't, you know, you know breathlessly campaigning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in places that we're not used to seeing Democrats. That was kind of what O'Rourke's whole thing was, right? You know, go places, always be live streaming, you know, have lots of rallies. You know, I remember thinking, you know, back in, you know, February, where are the candidates? Why do I not have any events to go to for the U.S. Senate candidates? Like mm-hmm. it was hard to find them. Uh, versus Better O'Rourke and then Ted Cruz, when they were in the heat of their election, it was like every day there was something going on that you could, you know, you could catch one of them giving a speech somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I think the problem for for Hager and really for a lot of the Democrats who saw what Better O'Rourke did, they, they came away thinking, oh, I can just have a flashy, cool website, you know, look like, you know, I'm a cool, hip, younger person and then, you know, run a bunch of TV ads and I'll be okay. Yeah. That's what the Democrats used to do unsuccessfully year after year after year that the message is get out there and work the territory and it's like i know the pandemic clearly prevented you know mj hager from doing a lot of that stuff yeah she needed to be in the fifth ward in houston she needed to be uh, you know you know in uh, on the border like really working the ground and not just pushing ads out you know that's such that's not going to win races in Texas. Democrats have got to figure that out. Yeah, and I don't know how much it actually affected the outcome or her, her success among uh, black voters, mm-hmm. but, but the, the risk that she had with Royce West um, was just ridiculous. I mean, not understanding that you should do everything to come together. And it, for, for those who are un- unaware of it, I mean, you know, she, she just, yep assumed that he would support her. He got upset and said, you never asked me to support you. I'm mm-hmm. not supporting you. And later, you know, I think he, he shifted back that he was, but. Well, I, yeah, I think, go ahead, Luis. I, I was just gonna say, I mean, even, even if West had been the nominee, it was an uphill climb for, right. I mean, I think Cornyn would still have won, uh, but it's Democrats trying to play by the, by these rules that, you know, by this point they should know they, they, it, it doesn't work. You know, it's like nominating John Kerry, uh, you know, for what seems like a lifetime ago. And he yeah. was, you know, a veteran. He, it, he was supposed to appeal to that group of voters, uh, you know, to that middle America white voter. Yep. And, you know, it didn't work. And the same thing for MJ Hagar. You can put all these veterans up all you want. They're Democrats and no Republicans going to vote for them. You know, a, a, a lot of Democrats, Maria, after that uh, primary and the primary runoff, they were like, it was so vicious. It was so nasty. And and I had uh, a lot of Democrats just sort of privately saying to me that MJ shouldn't have to apologize to him or try to work with him after how nasty it was. OK, it's nasty. On the Republican side, uh, for most of my career, I have watched the Republicans rip each other to shreds in March, and then they unite and win in November. That's what you do. Ted Cruz had his father <laughs> accused. Cruz had his father accused of being in on the JFK assassination by President Trump. President Trump suggested that his wife was ugly and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and he's right there voting with President Trump. They work together in Washington because that's what Republicans do it. I think that one of the things that could be unfortunate about this uh, is Democrats would see for the first time in a long time, they had a competitive primary statewide in Texas, which usually, uh, you know, it's, it's who draws the short straw, because if you're going to, you know, go for an office statewide in Texas as a Democrat, that's usually the beginning of your retirement from politics in Texas. Um, Doesn't necessarily have to be the case anymore, as we've seen uh, with uh, the former Senator Wendy Davis, who ran a a respectable campaign for, um, for, Congress. And um, you see Beto O'Rourke is still out there doing stuff. Um, but, you know, we have talked previously, Jeremy, about the guy who 
drove around the state in his truck, uh, his pickup truck. And that's all anybody remembers about the guy. He's a nice guy from Houston. His daughter, by the way, is the uh, sideline reporter for the Houston Astros. I don't even know why I know that off the top of my head. But the, the bottom line is they may see. Victor, the- I'm sorry, we should say his name. Victor, what's his name? Uh, is it Morales? <laughs> Victor Morales. There you go. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Great people from Houston. <laughs> Great people from Houston, Texas. So I sit here and I think about uh, the idea that Republicans are always doing this, always having what I'm going to call competitive primaries rather than just nastiness. Uh, And then in the background, I don't ever get Republicans saying, well, they should not have to work with that other person afterwards. When you become the nominee, especially after a very spirited primary, it's especially incumbent on you to get the party together to go against the other side, right? Because at the end of the day, that's the game. The parties exist for a reason, and that's to elect the nominees, uh, you know, in November. I did, I did uh, to Luis's point, wonder would it have made a difference uh, if Hagar wasn't the nominee? But, uh, you know, yes, to your point, the, the, uh, the coming together uh, should happen, but uh, for whatever reason didn't. I did have a conversation with uh, a congressional candidate who who was still in October uh, having questions about Hagar's approach and uh, Hagar's, um, you know, dealings with you know, the her competitors mm-hmm. uh, and with the party. And I think there, yeah. you know, some people were expecting some appeal to to the black community mm-hmm. overtly. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I think I would say one more one more thing about it, and then we'll uh, sort of wrap up here with everybody's final thoughts. But um, it, it, they, they, just, they just don't have muscle memory for how you do these things on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, they know about this. They run these nasty primaries, then they unite. Democrats have not done that in a generation in Texas, really. Um, I, I do think, to your point about whether it would have been different if um, you know maybe if Senator West had been the nominee, um, I, I think that National Democrats didn't expect. And they would have no reason to expect, really, when they were uh, recruiting Hager for that seat, for that for that nomination, they didn't understand at that time. And how could they have that? You know, the moment would be uh, the energy in the uh, Democratic Party would be around the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, African-Americans really delivering, uh, you know, a powerful uh, show of support for uh, former VP Biden. And so Senator West, an African-American successful state uh, senator, um, seemed to a lot of people to be more of a candidate for the moment, right? And so they came within, what, they came within four points, 30,000 votes of each other out of about a million votes cast. Um, we are uh, up against the clock here. We're going to wrap up right around 11. So um, final thoughts from, and whoever wants to take it first, obviously it's a, you know, it's a tall order to get your mind around all this, but um, uh, what do y'all think? Um, where are we in Texas and national politics? I'll leave it very broad for, for a reason. So you can kind of say what, whatever you would like to about this. Lisa, would you, you have thoughts? Yeah. yeah. I think I always have thoughts. I think that one of the, uh, Good, one that of, makes this easy for me. <laughs> I think that one of the things um, that's, that, that hadn't been mentioned that's, that's really on my mind and, and was the subject of our editorial today is, is, you know, the voter suppression in Texas. I mean, I, I don't know if I can call it unprecedented because the Lord knows we've got a history of doing far worse things mm-hmm. um, decades ago. But I, I just think that, you know, it's, it's uh, Texas, it's become clear, has the most restrictive voting, uh, voting laws in the country. And so many obstacles were put up to, to prevent people from voting. They, it seems, overcame overcame them. And um, I think that there's a success story in that, that for all the the fear and anxiety and the pandemic and all the things that people were worried about, um, civil unrest that, that would happen on election day is something to say that once again, the United States of America has had a, a, um, a peaceful, relatively smooth <laughs> thus far, you know, election. And another thing that that is very, very, very troubling in my mind is I don't know how many of you were up at whatever time that was, 2, 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. when the president uh, declared victory. I mean, this is this is really troubling. And you could say, oh, it's Trump being Trump and we have to just take it in stride. No, we, we don't because of one thing. People out there believe him when he says these things. When he declares our election a fraud, 
Mm-hmm. Some people believe them. They don't believe journalists. They don't believe those of us around this Zoom porn today. They're, they they believe when the president speaks, and that's why his words shouldn't just be taken in stride, shouldn't just be taken with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. It's the president of the United States calling our election a fraud, and I think, you know, we're not careful. We're, we're heading into a constitutional crisis. Yeah. Uh, Luis? Well, um, you know, actions don't matter. Policy barely matters. It's all about identity. That's the only way that Donald Trump is, you know, very close to either winning or even if he loses. Uh, you know, Biden says in the campaign, we're, we're, America is better than, than this, better than Trump. But it looks like we really aren't. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really disconcerting. Um, that's going to have that's it's going to take some time to get used to that. Yeah. Maria? A um, couple of things. Uh, one of, you know, the, the turnout was phenomenal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, going forward, what does that mean for candidates? Um, I'm curious about, you know, young voters who are now, you know, the prevailing wisdom is that the youth don't vote. Well, they actually did. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean going forward? And so, you know, as journalists, we, you know, we do this 365 days a year. So we're always looking forward to the next thing. So our reporting is going to start to shift to, you know, once we get past this, um, the legislative session coming up and, and what's coming out of there. And my good friend Jeremy here will have uh, lots to do with that. So, um, yeah, the the turnout, um, youth registration, and and where do we go uh, with with this now? Yeah, Jeremy, final thought. Well, I I think uh, you know the one thing everybody can agree on. You know, we've been talking about this on the Texas Take for you know months now. Yeah, polling Texas is a lot harder than it looks. You know, yes. these pollsters who come in from all parts of the you know country thinking that they can kind of figure out what we look like. Mm-hmm. It hasn't worked. You look in you know, 2018, you know, we talked about 11 of the 12 final polls were wildly incorrect. You know, mm-hmm. this time around, the last five polls were wildly incorrect. We had, we had some polls, there was a University of Texas, Tyler, sorry to call you all out, but you know, you know they, ha- they were off by nine points. You know, what's right. the point of polling? <laughs> the numbers are going to be so far off. And and you saw the Latino numbers were like all over the map. Some right. showed Biden winning 70 percent. Some showed 50 percent. It's like, how can this be a scientific poll if they're all so vastly different and nobody knows how to weight it? I think there, there comes a point where, you know, the, here's my Willie Nelson reference. It's that, you know, they can all start singing the uh, it's all going to pot song. You know, okay, he got it in. That's, the polls have just, you know, the, for regular listeners, they know that you just did your job on the show. It's always get the Willie Nelson thing in. It, the the, po- the polling is just clearly, you know, it's gotten away from people, particularly in places like Texas, where they're not used to yep. polling. They just can't. Do it, it. Yes, I take I take particular delight in the fact that anytime I would write about a poll, report on a poll, the first thing I can count on is pollsters will tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I appreciate all of you joining us on this special edition very much here on Facebook Live. Of course, if you are a a fan of the show, you you listened all the way to the end. Obviously, you enjoy this. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. I want to thank everybody who joined in, including Jeremy Wallace. You're always uh, on the road taking care of us, letting us know what's happening across Texas. Managing Editor for Content, Maria Reeves, good to see you. Uh, Lisa Falkenberg, Editor of Opinion at the Houston Chronicle, and Luis Carrasco, thank you so much. My name is Scott Braddock. I'm the editor at quorumreport.com, where we would love to have you as a subscriber, just like you should subscribe to the Houston Chronicle as well. Jeremy and I will see you on our next show later this week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.